I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Bulwark. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode number 82. 82, Mark. We're going to hit that century mark here pretty quickly. Yeah, we're coming up on that big 100. Hopefully we have our live show before then, right? Yeah, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> keep talking about it, man. Maybe, that'll, maybe, maybe we'll make the 100th show the live show. So this has been an interesting week for you because you, you've you been out there speaking at the Internet of Things. I've been following you on Facebook and LinkedIn and all the other places. You've had some interesting headgear on at times. <laughs> you've, you've been around. So tell us about what's going on with the Internet of Things. Yeah, so this is a, a company called the Energy Conference, um, and it's uh, they put on a bunch of different energy conferences. And this one is the Internet of Things in Oil and Gas. And James, it is the coolest thing. I'm going back after we finish recording the show. Um, and there's a bunch of surprises there. So one surprise was um, I'm sitting down at lunch, and um, this very proper uh, uh, English lady comes and walks up. She goes, I recognize your voice. So I started talking to her. Her name is Frances Metcalf, and she works for uh, Cambridge Consultants. And she's a fan of the show. She listens to the show, but she heard my voice from across the room <laughs> and, and knew that it was me. Um, so that was really cool to have you know one of our fans, one of our listeners from across the pond reach out and, and, and you know, come say hi. And we sat and had a nice conversation during lunch. The other thing, James, is all the young, smart people in that room. It, it is amazing. Um, um, you know, we're we're talking big data analytics, Internet of Things, machine learning, um, cognitive, and um, and, it, and it's you know I've been talking about this for a long time that this is coming to our industry. Well, it's here, um, and it's actually you know like I said, I'm going back today, but it has just been a blast. And yeah, I am speaking today on um, how to sell to the oil and gas industry. Unfortunately, by the time you hear this, it will be yesterday. So um, you know, great show, been a great time, and um. Next year, we have plans for the whole crew to go out there. We're going to do a couple podcasts live from the event. Um, we'll get some major guests on the show. It's just been a good time. Well, speaking of that, James Gordy is out there with the um, Oil & Gas Young Professionals podcast, yes? Yeah. Well, so he's out there, um, um, and we haven't quite figured out yet how we're going to record his podcast. Somehow, I'm going to help him with that. But yeah, he's out there as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. Doesn't the API Houston group have, have something coming up as well? Yeah, we'll talk about when we get to events, but it's if, if anybody out there would like to tour ConocoPhillips, and do you know how impossible it is to get a tour <laughs> of ConocoPhillips? My uh, um, API Young Professionals, uh, big shout out to everybody in that crew. They pulled it off, and so they're having a, a tour of ConocoPhillips. So listen to the show. When we get to the events, we'll tell you how you can sign up. Yeah, awesome. All right, let's get into the stories. We'll kick it off in Saudi Arabia in Houston. Saudi Aramco's bid uh, on a Houston oil refinery is big strategic bet. What's going on here? This is a very interesting development. Yeah, this ties into it's a lot of stuff that we've been talking about for a while. So, so the news story is Saudi Aramco is looking to to buy a refinery from um, Lydell Basel, right? Um, this won't be the first refinery that Saudi Aramco has on U.S. soil, and it won't be the last. What is really going on is that. Um, there's this big market um, out there, and it's the market is for petrochemicals and, and uh, ethylene and you know all that sort of stuff. And the market's for the emerging economies, the Vietnams, the Russians, the Chinese. You know, right now they don't need plastics, but their children will need plastics, and it's going to be a huge market. So it's a race. It's a race between the U.S., China, and the Middle East. Who can stand up these refineries the quickest? Who has the cheapest feedstock and who has the cheapest transportation costs? Well, here in the U.S., we actually have the second feed, cheapest feedstock. We have the most efficient refineries, and we have the cheapest transportation costs because we have deep water ports in every coast. So what Saudi Aramco is doing is very smart. So they're building refineries in the Middle East, which is a first, to try to capture this, this emerging market 
uh, need for petrochemicals, but to, to also kind of give them an extra edge. They're coming to the U.S. and, and buying refineries, which means they will have access to our cheap feedstock and to our cheap transportation costs. So very strategic move by Saudi Aramco. Um, if you go through this article, you know, there's some there's some kind of uh, Saudi Aramco bashing as far as 9-11 and some people in our government want to allow uh, U.S. citizens to sue Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia for that tie-in. And I really think that's just, that's just going ridiculously too far. Um, the uh, Saudi Arabia has been an ally of the U.S. for a very long time. And in the last couple president uh, administrations have kind of eroded that that relationship. And, and really, we need them as a partner, not just from stuff that goes on in the Middle East, but literally for this global growth in, in uh, exporting petrochemical products. So uh, it's going to be interesting how this works out. It will go through. They will buy the refinery. They'll retrofit it and they'll come in. But you have to remember, the people that are going to retrofit that refinery, the people that are going to work there, they're not Saudis. They're going to be Americans. So it's jobs for Americans. Can you tell us exactly what this particular refinery does? This refinery does fuel refining, but it also has the ability um, to to produce a feedstock for petrochemical plants. And that's the reason Saudi Aramco is looking at this. If it was a pure fuel play, they wouldn't touch it. I got to push back on one thing. It's just bothering me too much. Saudi Arabia's human rights violations are are, are sort of in sort of in full view you can actually over the weekend i watched a netflix documentary with a bunch of undercover um you know cameras over there and so forth and i i mean i understand the saying it's going too far but at a certain point i i do like when certain activism puts puts the spotlight on things that need to be exposed yeah well so it's a different culture in the middle east totally different culture and so it's when you take western lenses and look at Middle Eastern culture, there's a lot of stuff they do that we just don't think is right. But you also have to understand that if you reverse it, it's the same thing. If you take Middle Eastern lenses and look at what goes on in Western culture, they don't think a lot of stuff is right. It's just part of having different cultures. I mean, you know, we're, we're not all the same on this planet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can talk more about that offline. I don't want to get too controversial here, but let's move on over there. Um, <clears throat> Let's move away from the controversy. I kind of like the fact that there's not so much controversy in this week's show. Let's move over to Seeking Alpha with uh, Total SA takes the Barnett win away from First Reserve. And this is, I, I just before you, you kick it off here, Mark, the first uh, line here, Total intercepted First Reserve's opportunistic purchase of Barnett Shale from Chesapeake through its preemptive right. And I'm thinking, wow, that seems like a pretty big boss move right there. Now, this is a very shrewd move by Total. So preemptive right is basically first right refusal. This is something Total negotiated with Chesapeake a long time ago. And uh, Chesapeake was getting ready to sell these assets to a, or these reserves to a company called First Reserve, which makes it kind of confusing. Um, and Total pulled their, um, their preemptive right out and picked this up. What's happening is um, Total is basically picking up some very high-value assets in the Barnett Shale um, for really not that much money, right at the point where the price is coming back. So um, they're, they're going to be sitting on some good, solid, recoverable reserves. They didn't spend a lot of money. They know how to get it out of the ground. Um, and now they're, now they're going to do is just wait for the prices to ease up a little bit, and they'll start you know, pumping crude gas out of the ground. So you know, great business move by Total. So for anybody that is new to long-term contract negotiation, what's a first right of refusal about? So, um, so the first right refusal, which is what this preemption right is, uh, first right refusal is when you negotiate in a contract with a either a supplier or a buyer or a vendor or, or whatever. Um, if somebody else wants to buy this or whatever, you get first shot. And um, you know, James, you and I have that in some of our podcast uh, sponsorships language. Um, it's just it gives a company the security to know that if a competitor comes in, if they want to pay the price, they can take 
they can have the first shot at, at whatever it is you're selling. So what kind of Barnett assets are we looking at here? Um, you're looking at a ton of, of oil and gas. Um, I can't remember. It's, um, I think it's, oh, I can't remember. The company remember acquires the size. a sizable, well-established uh, producing asset, including approximately 215,000 net developed and underdeveloped acres, well leases, minerals. Yeah, they're getting quite a yeah. package there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and once again, it's highly recoverable, which in, in the shale plays, you know, that, that is a, Besides the quality of your operator, the recoverability of that of that makes makes or breaks you financially. And so they they just they just walked into something. They didn't walk into this. They saw this. This was strategic. Um, they they just pulled off a really good business decision here. Seems like they're getting it for pennies on the dollar here too. Yeah, they're not really getting it for pennies on the dollar. They're getting it for nickels on the dollar though. <laughs> nickels on the dollar always yeah. help. <laughs> nickels yeah. on the dollar always help. Um, and, you know, of course, Chesapeake's um, woes continue, and we'll see kind of where that goes. Any thoughts on Chesapeake? Well, Chesapeake's basically shedding assets, and they're not the only one doing it. Um, they're trying to generate cash. Um, you know, they're not in, in a great place right now. And this is what you do. You, you start selling your portfolio so you can have some cash so you can run your business. Um, I was a little worried about them. I, I think they're going to pull out of this much smaller and much leaner, but I think they could pull out of this. So we'll see. Yeah, hopefully for the uh, for the employees over there, especially um, some of the friends that I have over on the social media side. All right, independent energy ENPs. It's a new game, but not everyone plays the same way. Yeah, so so this was a bunch of college students that um, looked at the the total shareholder returns on a bunch of independent EPs over a period of time, and they try to figure out what did the really good people do. And what do the really bad people do? And so this is, um, if, if you want to kind of see some real research, take check out this article. Um, and, and once again, it goes back to stuff that we've talked about before, you know, understanding your core uh, assets, uh, making sure that you uh, increase your exposure to uh, more recoverable fields, shedding assets that aren't, um, you know, prime for, for your sweet spot. Um, but the other thing, if you kind of read through this, is um and this ties back directly to the the IoT um, conference I'm gonna go <laughs> go finish up today. Um, but one of the new things they found the companies that did really well is they use big data analytics to identify the most prospective drilling location, optimizing tracking. So think about that. You're having big data analytics come in and helping these small EMP. So basically, technology, new technology, you can almost say disruptive technology, um, coming in and helping these smaller players play. And do well not only among their their um, their competitors, but also against some of the big guys. So this is sort of like you know we we talk about social media. This is sort of like how social media helps a small business actually get the same exposure, right? That a larger business can, which you used to not be able to buy that before social media. And this is another use of technology allowing the small guys to compete with the big guys. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And we talked about this over at the TIPCO conference about how machines are so much better at analyzing trends across massive amounts of data points than we are. Yeah, it, we have a limit, right? You can only read so many things in one day and you will start losing attention. A machine doesn't do that. A machine can read millions and millions and millions of things a day and it doesn't never, the attention never wears, uh, wavers. So, um, you know, our industry is changing because of this. It's good. Um, and it's, I'm looking forward to having more of this sort of stuff happen. Yeah. And so it looks like they used um, something called TSR, which is tot total uh, shareholder returns to map this out. Yeah. Right. And you'll see some other financial um, uh, terms in there. Um, you'll see stuff like um, uh, EBITDA, which is um, earnings <laughs> before interest, depreciation and amortization. Um, and then you also something see something called uh, uh, CAGR, which is 
shoot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're calling uh, yourself out here, Mark. Yeah, it's a com- compounded annual growth rate. That's what it is, Boom. compounded annual growth rate. Financial terms, right? And and I run across these financial terms in the work that we do, but I am by no means an oil and gas finance person. Um, we keep talking that we need to get an oil and gas finance person on this show to help really go deep in some of this. We need to find, hey, if anybody in the audience wants to uh, maybe jump on the mic once in a while and help go deeper in some of this stuff, reach out to us. I think that's a show in itself, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or maybe it's a show in yourself. If, if you'd like to have a, uh, your own show on our oil and gas global network, reach out to us as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll audition you and see if you uh, make the cut. <laughs> and we'll help, but we'll also help you too. If you make the cut, we'll help you. Yeah, definitely. We don't, uh, we, we don't well, you can ask Patrick Pister. We, we're working through all the processes to get everything streamlined. All right, let's move over to um, this pretty significant discovery by Apache that really the, the news broke last week, but um, let's talk about it now. Alpine High Discovery puts Apache back in the game. Boom. Boom. <laughs> so, <laughs> Apache's been struggling, right? And uh, so we have, we have some good friends at work over there, um, and, and they've just been struggling. They've just made some, just some not great business decisions, which is costing them. And then they make this Alpine High Discovery. James, it's supposed to hold about 15 billion, B, billion barrels of oil. What? Yeah. And, and they, they, they did, they figured this stuff out using geophysics. Um, and then they did some testing out there and they kept it quiet. Nobody knew they were out there. Yeah, and this so didn't they, really, there was no, no, the rumor mill was not churning on this one. The, no, when the news that. popped, it just popped and everyone's like, whoa. No, they did an excellent job of keeping it quiet. And so then they went out and bought um, the, the mineral rights and they, they didn't pay a premium on it because nobody thought there was much anything out there. So, you know, th- this goes back, and, and Apache's not a wildcatter, but this goes back to the early days of our industry when you had wildcatters, when you had people and companies make um, decisions that their peers didn't think was a good decision, right? They took a risk and some of them really profited from it. And this the whole wildcatter um, mentality still exists in this industry. It's like, you know what? I know everybody says there's nothing there. Let's go see. And, you know, so here's a good example of Apache doing that. And they're going, are they going to benefit from this for, for years and years and years and years? You know, there's another little company out there called Log. And they're a um, um, deep water um, operator offshore, which little and deep water should not go together. But they do the same thing offshore that Apache just did here. They'll go out in areas where the big majors, you know, the Exxons and the Chevrons, whatever, said, that, you know, it's not worth drilling here. And they'll spend a lot of money and time on their geoscience. And they'll find stuff the big guys missed. So I, I just love this about this industry. And, you know, good thing for Apache, this is going to turn their company completely around. Um, this is going to, you know, push them up toward the top of, of the, you know, the midsize independents out there. Yeah. And where it's located, you wouldn't exactly think, all right, yeah, definitely there. It's in the middle of nowhere. Where, <laughs> where, and there's a lot of oil and gas in the middle of nowhere. But this is like in the middle of nowhere that the other oil and gas industry, uh, companies said it's not worth us going out there. Yeah. It, in New Mexico, of all places, right? Yeah. You, you know, when you think when you think massive and massive reserves, um, of course, you think West Texas, um, you know, in the Permian Basin and everything. And this is in the Delaware Basin. And, and yeah, I love I love that that little, you know, they just kept it quiet. And, and that's what, you know, in some of the stories that I'm, I'm hearing that that's always the way uh, they did it back in, like you said, the days of the Wildcatters. Yeah. And another thing I want to bring up is if you read this article, they talk about Apache's projecting 13 percent recovery. I want to talk about that for a second. In this industry, most operators recover between 6 and 12% of the oil and the gas that's in that field. So that, lead, that means that anywhere from 94 to um, um, 78% of that oil is still in that field. <laughs> and so think about that. 
um, as we have new technologies, we'll be able to go out and recover more and more and more of that. That's why I say we're in a hydrocarbon abundant world. It's everywhere. So even this enormous field that they found, Apaches thinks it can recover 13, which makes them a leader as far as recoverability. Um, but that still leaves um, 77% of the oil in the ground. Yeah, we're just never going to run out of oil. Like you say, it's yeah, just, yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy to think how much oil is just, is, is just sitting there that technology is waiting to tap. Yeah, it's, um, I tell people all the time, you never worry about running out of sand to make glass or running out of iron to make steel. You don't think of it that way. You don't think that it's constrained because it's not. It's the same way with oil. It's not constrained. It's not like there's one bucket of it. It's everywhere. It's just, do we have the technologies to get it out of the ground effectively and environmentally responsibly? And, and we'll continue to do that. Well, one field that had a lot of technology applied to it and was quite hot and quite successful um, is, of course, the Eagleford here in Texas. And um, in a certain sense, you just the the sort of shine has has worn off the Eagleford play, and it, maybe it's just people are familiar with it or they're used to it. But um, the uh, Bureau of Economic Geology went out there, and I don't know if they were trying to to ensure everyone that there's still oil there or what's going on, but they said the Bureau of Economic Geology says 10 billion barrels of oil in the Eagleford are recoverable. Yeah, and that field holds 230 billion barrels of oil. <laughs> and I mean, that's that's an enormous amount of oil. And, and yeah, right now, 10 billion can be recovered. Next year, it'll be 10.5. year after that, it'll be 11. And it's just going to continue as we introduce new, new technologies. What's happened, though, is production has declined. And of course, production has declined um, because of this low crude price environment. Um, um, we're starting to see, I'm starting to see what looks like the increase in price for natural gas, which is actually how the Eagle Ford really got its start. So the price creeps back for natural gas. You can see more drilling uh, happening in the Eagleford, but they're going to be looking for gas, not oil. When the price of crude creeps back up, they'll start they'll switch. And so it's just market dynamics. But um, huge recoverable feel. Um, everybody's out there. And, and once again, you know, if, if you made the right decision, you have the right operators, you're doing things the right way, even now you're still making money out there. And unfortunately, um, some people got into it when – Prices were inflated and they didn't know what they're doing. And so we've, we've had some companies go under out there. But um, it, it will be there for, for our, <laughs> from our lifetimes, our kids' lifetime, their kids' lifetime, and their kids' lifetime. I'm glad you brought up price because I've seen this across a few different um, social media channels where people are, are wondering what this new discovery by um, Apache and, and some other discoveries are going to do to oil prices. And I feel like you know, you tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like that's really small picture thinking because can really Apache's discovery in New Mexico offset the price of oil and keep it low? Um, it, they're, they're really not connected. So what you have to understand is Apache's not out there to find oil. Apache's out there to make money. So if if the price is low enough where they won't make money, they won't go in production. It just does not make fiscal sense. And, you know, we, we talked about all the ducks. You know, all the wells that are drilled but not completed, they're waiting for the price to come back. So, you know, and that's not just something that's going on in West Texas. And that's not just something that's going on in the U.S. That's something's going on in the world. There's, you know, it's, um, you know, they're, the, my favorite piece of this industry, the, the deep water subsea manufacturers are really, really hurting right now. And next year, James, is going to be worse for them. Um, and the reason they're hurting right now, and the reason it's going to be worse for them is that people aren't doing exploration offshore and anywhere in the world right now. And, and yes, they're still going on, but it's been curtailed dramatically. The whole industry, the whole global industry is waiting for the price to come back. As the price comes back, different ways of getting oil off the ground make fiscal sense. Like um, um, conventional reservoirs, dirt cheap. They'll be the first ones to go back into production and exploration. Uh, next will be a lot of the frack plays. Um, some of the last ones that will come back, will be, unfortunately, will be deep water and the, um, 
the oil sands. So it just depends on the cost of getting that oil out of the ground versus what the market is. So the market determines that. Just because you find it doesn't mean you go in production. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you said that because that's exactly what I was thinking when I was reading those. But I don't have time to debate everyone on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man, way too much debate. All right, what to do with the strategic petroleum reserve? We were talking before about some strategic things that the government still holds on to. What's going on here? Yeah, I'm actually glad you brought this up. I have not thought about this. And I read through this and it's like, you know what? This is really something we need to think about. So the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was established during the Arab oil embargo in the in the 70s, basically so that no country uh, could put a chokehold on the U.S. And it it's um, it's there's just a ton of oil stored in the ground. I think it's close to 700 million barrels, um, which we use 20 million barrels a day. So you can do the math and figure out how many days that we could run off the Strategic Reserve without, without curtailing anything. It's quite a long time. But now that we're in this hydrocarbon abundant world, do we still need the strategic petroleum reserve? We still need a small one, but do we need one of this size anymore? Whereas if something bad would happen in the world, our our you know our, our independent operators just go out and start producing, they could turn a faucet on. So um, and and what what the reason this is an article at all is that the uh, Congress is looking at the strategic petroleum reserve because it needs about three hundred seventy five million dollars in upgrades, new pumps and pipes and parts, whatever. And it's like you know this is a good question because the other thing, James. You know, and I don't want to get into politics here, but we, we have a ton of debt as a country, and it's not a good place to be. We could actually sell this oil in the market and, and reduce, if not eliminate, all of that debt. Um, you know, this is hopefully there's some very smart people in our government that aren't looking at this through the political lens, um, because what happens is there's jobs around the strategic petroleum reserve, and whatever senator state has this strategic petroleum reserve in it is going to keep those jobs. So he's going to keep the strategic he or she. The strategic petroleum reserve up no matter what. And that's why we still have a strategic helium reserve for World War I when blimps were seen as vital to the military. And we still have it because no senator wants to eliminate those jobs. So hopefully we have some really smart people that are looking at this because it's um it's it's a good thought-provoking question because because of the way technology has changed, I'm not sh- I, I, first thing, I'm sure we don't need one this big. We don't need to put this much money. I'm sure of that. How much do we have? It says 695 million barrels. Yeah, 695 million barrels. <laughs> That's a lot of oil. Um, the other thing, though, James, is, is you know, we talk about how, um, how um, um, Saudi Aramco, especially Saudi Arabia, uses oil as a weapon. Here we have another weapon. You know, if something with one of the big oil producers out there, something would happen where, where we need to um, uh, curtail whatever they're doing. What would happen, James, if we dumped all this oil in the market at one time? <laughs> um, <laughs> we put Saudi Arabia out of business, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's another way to think about. It. Once again, I hope people are thinking. Some very smart people thinking through this because there's a there's a lot of benefit here. But you know, do we need to keep one of this size and keep putting this much money back into it? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, color me skeptic because you're using the words really smart and government together. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Let's not go there. No. <laughs> All right. Um, I can hated fuel mandate makes profit for gas station owners. What is going on? Speaking of our government, this is what's going on. <laughs> Darn so, it. We can never get away from them in this industry. Yeah. So basically you have um, um, credits that the refineries. So, so let me back up. The The U.S. Re, um, um, has stood up a law called the Renewable Fuel Standards, and it requires the refineries to mix ethanol, which ethanol is a competing project product. It's not good for your engine. Um, the only people that make money out of the farmers that get government subsidized. Um, it's not. It's not even good for the environment. And so the the refiners are forced to mix ethanol by law, 
And if they if they're smaller and they can't afford it, they have to buy these credits. And these credits are generated anytime somebody blends ethanol with gasoline. So what's happening is companies, smaller companies, have figured out they can make money just by selling the credits. And so what they do is a small company will go buy gasoline in tanker trucks, like the 18 wheelers you see. They'll go buy ethanol and they'll mix it in that tanker truck, and then they'll go deliver it to whatever gas stations want to buy this stuff. But they, that automatically jet um, automatically um, creates renewable fuel credits, right? And so, um, and they're called RINs. Um, and so those credits, they now sell on the open market and the refineries that can't afford to buy the ethanol are, are forced to buy these renewable fuel credits as, as a way to, to counteract the fact they're not using ethanol. So we've artificially created this market for renewable <laughs> fuel credits, which makes no sense. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's costing the bigger refineries millions of dollars. And let me tell you who pays those millions of dollars. It's not Chevron. It's not Exxon. It's you when you fill up your car. Uh, and it's just, this is just absurd. And of course, human nature is if you figure out a way to make money, especially in, in, in this country, you'll, you'll do it. And so here's, like I said, here's companies making money, selling these credits, which is just, it's just ridiculous. We need, we, we need to get, we need to eliminate the renewable fuel standard. Simple. Done. Go- government it, intervention, creating a really bad market situation. I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah. And it's, um, uh, you know, hopefully we can get it done. Um, it, it, it's, I mean, this is the American people are paying for this and it's just, it's just absurd, but it's there. It's what's going on. Oh my gosh. And so who, who's involved in this debate? Because they, they mentioned Iken and who else? Who is he and, so, and who else is involved? So um, Iken owns, um, um, uh, who is it? Is it uh, CVR Energy, um, which is a refiner. And so what he's saying is the same thing I just rattled off, right? The, the, this is ridiculous. We're adding costs that we don't need to add costs. We're a low margin business to begin with, and we end up passing this on to the consumer. We need to get rid of this. So the, the people that like the renewable fuel standard, the ethanol lobby groups, um, are saying, no, Icon, you're being a, a I don't want to say the word they're used, but you're, you're not being a good guy. You know, this is better for everybody. You need to go ahead and suck this up. And once again, it's the us versus them, the anti-oil and gas against the oil and gas industry. And it's just, you know, I, I respect the people. I, I mean, I really do. I, I love my country. I'm very patriotic. If you have a different opinion, mine, that's fine. But basically on logic, you know, this makes no logical sense for anybody, not even for the people that don't like the oil and gas industry. Well, and also just don't tell me what I have to do. Go live however you want. Just don't tell me how I have to live. And what you said earlier reminded me of my forthcoming um, Obamacare fees, <laughs> which is, you know, if you don't buy health care, you're going to pay this, this premium in taxes. And it's, they're doing that at the same business level in this situation where it's like, okay, you, you don't have to do this thing, but you have to pay this money. It, it's yeah, just crazy. Yeah. yeah, and then and then like I said, it's um nobody this benefits nobody. Actually, the only people that benefit from this are the guys that figure out how to sell these renewable fuel credits. <laughs> um and you know, I don't want to put them out of business, but it's um it this benefits nobody. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I I do. I don't I don't want a distorted market. Let's move over to some good news in Colorado. We've been we've been telling everyone to get on the forefront of this and it looks like you know, I can't say, take any any claim, but good good work out there Coloradoans. Yeah, so what happens is... Here, had, let me uh, let me read the, the headline real quick. Postmortem, why Colorado's anti-fracking measure didn't make the ballot. Didn't make the ballot. Yeah, it didn't even make the ballot. So um, Colorado fi- has wised up. Um, w- what had happened, they had two anti-fracking measures for the November ballot. They need uh, X number of signatures to actually get it done. They didn't get the right number of signatures, so it didn't even get put on the ballot. And then Colorado's also changing their constitution where 
this way of getting your own private um, uh, law on the ballot is not going to be easy anymore. So this was their last chance to actually get it done. And you know, hats off to a lot of the um, operating companies in Colorado. They spent money, and more importantly, their employees spent time going to talk common sense to people in Colorado, saying this is just going to destroy our economy. It's going to destroy the jobs we have, the prosperity we have, the taxes we have, the money that's going to schools and hospitals. Um, and so the people listened in Colorado, and it, it just it, people wouldn't sign the petition, so they didn't get enough. So, um, and of course, the anti-fracking groups are, are, are saying that it's big oil, and you know that they. Um, that's the lobbyist that um, had the politician swayed. No, <laughs> you had to get X number. I think it was 200,000 signatures and you couldn't get them. That has nothing to do with big oil. That has nothing to do with who's, who's, you know, running the state or who's in the, the legislature or whatever. You just couldn't get enough signatures. So this is a win for our side. And the nice thing is going forward, it's going to be almost impossible for them to pull this off again. Well, let's talk about that because that big oil thing gets tossed around so much in every, in every debate. Let's realistically talk about how much "quote unquote" big oil is centered in in Colorado. I mean, it's it's full of of small independent operators going out there and making money for their families and making the state better. Yeah, so ninety um, something percent—I can't remember the exact number—of the production in the U.S. is done by companies of twelve and less people. That 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 that's not big oil. That's your neighbor, right? That's your uncle. That's the friend of a friend. That's the guy that coaches for free your son's little league team. That's who's producing the oil and gas in Colorado. It's not big oil. Big oil is really more of an offshore play because it's just so expensive. So you have you have to be big to even do that. Um, and, and they have their hands any place that makes money. So they have the hands in, in the shale place as well. But um, this is not big oil. This is like I said, these are small companies that are in Colorado, um, you know, providing prosperity for themselves, their employees, their employees' families. You, if you live in that state, because they're paying taxes, you know. So it's yeah, they got some nice roads up there. Yeah, (laughs) for for all the for all the winter, those those are some nice roads. Yeah, and it's um, you know, it's you know, I'm I'm glad this happened. I predicted that this was happening, and I'm glad I'm right because, you know, you have people make this um, and and this we've talked about this before, and I can't quite figure this out. But the anti-oil and gas groups are there's two pieces of there's a smaller group that knows. That's all about making money, right? They don't really believe in what they're preaching, but then they feed the the bigger, larger group who emotionally is attached to this um, this anti oil and gas sediment, and and they really believe that they're that we're evil for the planet, but it's not true. And I just can't quite figure out. I've tried to have logical discussions with a lot of people that are on that side without talking about politics or their personal beliefs or right or wrong. Just trying to understand why they're so emotionally attached to it. And I can't figure it out. If I do figure it out, we'll announce it on the show. <laughs> I'm going to announce it right now. It's a religious belief. That's, you think it's a religious belief? It's, it's to the level of religious belief. I'm not, I, I agree with you there. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's to the level of a religious belief where it's, they're so emotionally into what they're... I talk about my friend Eric all the time on the show because he's my number one anti-oil and gas friend on Facebook. And just yesterday, he, he, was, you know, he posted something. It was like, oil, 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 cover the whole world in oil, you know, and, and being, you know, obviously losing his mind. And then his, one of his very next posts was that Meyer, which is a really fantastic grocer up in the Midwest, Meyer is going to start doing home deliveries. And he was celebrating that. <laughs> and you can't see that it's he can't see the dichotomy because he's so emotionally invested in right. in that worldview that it's re- that religious fervor level where it's it, you you're you're pretty much having a dogmatic debate. It's not a debate about facts. It's a debate about 
what they feel is morally right and wrong. You, you, you see this in vegan diets and things like that too, where the vegan diet cannot provide you with certain nutrients that you have to get from fish and, and beef and so forth. Um, but they're so morally against, you know, killing of animals that they, they go down this path, which leads a lot of vegans down, you know, really unhealthy paths. In, you want to know something funny about that? interesting, the, the way it plays in. Yeah, we'll get off subject here, but I just read this the other day. It was a psychology, psychology, this magazine, Psychology, and they're talking about um, people that have, that restrict their diets, which ones of them, when they fall off the wagon, fall off the worst, and it's vegans. Like, they're vegan, 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 they'll eat 13 hamburgers. <laughs> vegan, 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 they'll eat 13 hamburgers. I mean, it's like, so restrictive, though, I could understand. Yeah, yeah and so I just, I just thought that was funny. It's funny you brought that up. Yeah, I mean that's so that's that's my that's my take on it, you know, being the sort of being Catholic and theologically minded and I've got a whole bookshelf full of philosophy and theology in front of me here and that's 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 how I see it and having these conversations it's um you start to you start to realize that um you know, we're debating over almost uh, religious texts for them. All right, let's let's move on from there cuz we're we're going to run out of time. But um, I'm really excited about this new uh, Mark Wahlberg movie coming out, The Deepwater Horizon. And so I threw this in here, Deepwater Horizon film, a tribute, says Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, so I, I was invited to actually go to a private screen of this today. I can't because I'm speaking. Um, but I want to see it, too. From what I understand, now I have not seen the film. What I understand, they actually don't bash the oil and gas industry. And you know what, James? Where have we gotten where you and I celebrate when somebody releases a movie that doesn't bash the oil and gas industry? I mean, it's, this is ridiculous, but this is, this is a people story. And this is about some of the heroes on the Deepwater Horizon that made the disaster much less worse than it could have been. And so I'm, I'm actually looking really forward to, to, to seeing this movie. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And I talk all the time with, with our clients and on this show and any, anyone who will listen in this industry about how much we need to humanize the people in this industry to, to, to make gains so that people can see that, like you said, it's your neighbor doing this work. And I hope that this can make some sort of, a, of an impact at that level. Yeah, I, I hope so too. And the fact that it came out of Hollywood is impressive to me. Um, you know, Hollywood's out there to make money itself, um, but for them to not put the typical Hollywood slant on this is, I think, cool. Yeah, and of course, like I said, neither of us have seen it. I've, have seen I've, it yeah. I've, I've watched the extended preview, and it really does look like a, a really interesting take on a very, obviously, very human human story. All right, that is our uh, stories for the week. We also have the Weekly Onion. It's The Onion Reviews, Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. And if you've never seen The Onion Reviewer with Pete Rosenthal, he's pretty hilarious because he always sets it up, and it... The the review quickly devolves into how psychologically damaged this man is. <laughs> so, well, I, I, it's just for somebody that's seen this movie, it was pretty bad. <laughs> well, he talked about how it really it 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 made him think about when he was nine years old and his favorite two people in the world, his parents, were divorcing, and it goes way down that way down that <laughs> path. He's you know that's the whole character. He's he's a lunatic. It's pretty good. Check it out in the show notes. Uh, we got the link there. And Bulwark has another winner, another offshore winner. Yeah. So congratulations, Frank Gonzalez, manager at Sound Oceanics. Um, you have won the bull, t- the, uh, you have the, bull? the, bull, the bulwark two-tone base layer. Um, and like I keep saying, it really has become the fashion accessory in oil and gas. I can't not laugh when you say that. <laughs> um, so uh, congratulations. If, uh, if you would like to win the fashion accessory for oil and gas in 2016, 
It's very simple. You just need to go to bulwark.com forward slash podcast. That's B-U-L-W-A-R-K.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information, and then one lucky winner will be drawn next week, and hopefully it will be you. Yeah, hopefully. And just a quick plug for Sound Oceanics. They offer multiple services and products that uh, that support the offshore survey, construction, and research industries. So uh, I want to give a plug for them because we talk a lot about how offshore is hurting. Hopefully they're able to pick up some contracts in this environment. Yeah, it's. I'm sure they're hurting as well. But, you know, this is a tough industry. It's full of a bunch of cowboys and roughnecks, and we're pulling out of it. So <laughs> just, you know, Keep keep driving, uh, Sound Oceanics. We'll, you'll come out of this. Yeah, and uh, and there there's a there's a couple of cowboys that work over at Bulwark, so good company. Um, all right, what what events we have coming up? Because you you alluded to one earlier, but first we have King and Spalding Latin America Energy Forum on September 29th. Yeah, I'll actually be there. If you go, uh, hit me up on Twitter. Let me know. I'd love to connect. This one's free. There, uh, James will put a link in the show notes. Um, this is about what's going on in Latin America in the energy market. And is this um, the one you asked for a press pass for? Uh, <laughs> and it was free <laughs> no no wait what was that no that's um that's the one that's coming up that's another one the um i can't remember the name of it yeah the tell yeah, the back story there yeah so um you know james and i often get press passes and i go out and actually do interviews and we'll record podcasts and stuff and try to um tell the story of, of what's going on and so there was this event coming up in october uh this year and i reached out for a, uh, see if they would be okay with the press pass. And the woman came back. She goes, if Mark, it's free. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether you have a press pass or not. So, okay. So, no, this isn't, isn't this one. Um, this one should be good. They have some good speakers. Um, they have some people from various uh, parts of the government in uh, Latin America that are in charge of, of um, energy and mineral rights. Um, so, I'll be there. Like I said, hit me up. And then the other one we talked about at the very top of the show, uh, API Young Professionals has a Phillips 66 tour. It's, it's on September 29th. Um, it's going to be limited to 30 people. Uh, James put a link in the show notes. All you have to do is click and go sign up, but it's limited to 30 people. So if you want to go to this, and this is a once-in-a-lifetime event, you can't just walk into Phillips 66, much less get a tour of everything they do. Um, go to link, hurry up, sign up, and um, you will have a blast. And I'm going to try to make that one as well. Yeah, and just to make it easier on everyone, if you go to, since you you know a lot of people, um, some people check out the show notes, a lot of people are just listening. So something really easy to remember to go register for this. And like Mark said, it's 30 people. That's going to fill up pretty quick. So tribrocket.com forward slash 66 will take you straight there. I'll, I'll put together a link for that, Mark. Cool. Yeah. So first Friday Q&A is a couple of weeks away. Yep. First Friday Q&A, we, we may turn that into its own podcast. It has become so popular and so many people reach out to us. Um, we've get we get some really really great questions. So um, if you have any questions for us, um, not just me for James, right? If you want to understand, if you're a small service company out there and you want to under, better understand how to market your business, um, you know, you can ask James questions as well. Try to stump him for a change. <laughs> um, um, Please, yeah, that would be fun. Re- yeah, reach out to us and 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 if you really want to get extra brownie points, uh, plug your uh, earbuds into your smartphone, record a question, and then text it or email it to James because he loves those things. I do, and if you want to write it in, it's tryrocket.com forward slash QA Mark. No reviews. Oh my God! Come on, people. Not one, James. Not one. Not a single one. Oh, I think what, on. is it back to school time? Everyone's too busy. It is back to school time. But come on, audience. We have two hundred thousand of you listening to us. Go give us a review. Take take a minute. I don't care if it's one word. Just saying good or okay or whatever. Um, it helps us rank for um, the search engine. But the other thing that it does, and James pointed this out a while back, is there's so many podcasts out there, it's hard to find good content. And what most people look at is the reviews. So if you help give us a review, that's going to help the other people that are searching for good podcasts find us 
listening to us and benefit from our infinite wisdom and fashion <laughs> <laughs> fashion sense here. So yeah, come on, people, go leave us reviews, please. All right, yeah, and I saw the the LinkedIn group crossed fifteen hundred, another big big milestone. And I think us. I must have cleared probably at least twenty yesterday. It's just huge. Yeah, if uh, the LinkedIn group is, I used to say it's a sister of this show. It's really the sister. It's really a, a, a social part of the Oil and Gas Global Network, which this show is part of. And we have other shows that are part of that. And we're going to have future shows that are part of that. So if you want to find out more about what's going on with the Oil and Gas Global Network, if you want to be the first to know about live events, giveaways, new podcasts, um, go join the LinkedIn group. The, the flip side is you also have a whole 1,500 now of your peers there. They're there to help you. They'll answer questions, steer you in the right direction, help educate you, um, maybe even get you something funnier than the darn onion. So go join the <laughs> Join the LinkedIn group. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, I, 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 by all means, um, anybody who has good links, drop them in there. I'm all I'm all for anything, um, but the onion. Uh, we're going to continue to <laughs> disagree on that one. That's tribrocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. Take you straight in there, um, and also to leave reviews, tribrocket.com forward slash tw reviews takes you straight into the iTunes store. Um, of course, the show notes are at tribrocket.com forward slash tw eighty two because this is episode eighty two. And what's up with the uh, the show notes, Mark? Yeah, instead of you trying to take notes or wondering what the hell's going on, just go to the show notes. James has put everything there in order. It's all clickable links, and it makes it really easy for you to do a deeper dive in some of these articles. Also, the links for the events that we talked about are there. Uh, James and I's contact information is there in case you want to talk to us directly. Everything's there. And, and literally, you just, you just type in uh, tryrocket.com forward slash TW82 or whatever episode it is, and, and you'll be right there. Make things so much easier for you. Well, one last plug for you, Mark. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, with us for, I don't know, a speaking event? Yeah. So, um, you know, we love to get on the road. We've done it quite a bit this year. We're, we're booking up for the end of this year and we're booking up for next year. But, you know, if you have a sales organization, a marketing organization, you have a, a trade show, you have some type of only guys conference. If you're a school, uh, reach out to James and I, uh, we would love to come visit, love to come speak there. I mean, we'd be happy to share the details. Yeah. And it's uh, again, our, our contact information, everything need tribrocket.com forward slash TW 82. Mark, I got a big day ahead of me. How about you? You ready to go? Yeah, so folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. Hey, Mark, I screwed up. I screwed up. I, I skipped the tab. <laughs> Damn it.